encourage you to keep your scriptures open. Um, if you need to access a copy of God's Word today, um, you can. Uh, there's plenty of apps on your phone actually to do so. You also see uh, an, uh, one that we recommend is either the ESV Bible app, which is free, um, or the uh, the uh, there's um, several others that you'll find in your app store if you just go to the Google Play or App Store on your iPhone. We also uh, would encourage you on this online portal, you'll also see where you can leave, in the same place that you can leave comments and request live prayer. You can also um, be reading through God's Word. I'm going to be going through the ESV, the English Standard Version, if you're looking for the version that I'm reading from. And again, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Now, even as I can't wait to open up God's Word with you today, I just want to say again, this is so awkward. You don't, you don't have, you don't see it here, but it, it feels a little bit like a garage or basement video. We're we're we're, uh, we're putting blankets on windows. We've been running around here like mad. We're filming this in our foyer, and that's actually okay for all this to feel a little awkward and strange. You know, a great deal of work has been put into making this service as unawkward as possible. But you should know that. We, um, again, are, even all the work that we're putting in, we're only going to put in so much work because the church is meant to be an in-person thing, and it's good that we feel that. Um, you know, whether you got up this morning um, and got dressed for church, as I know many of you have done, and I'd encourage it, too, to treat this like you would any other church day, as we call it around our house, or you got up and you had Pop-Tarts in your PJs, again, you are so welcome but I want you to, to join in with us today, but I want you to recognize, again, we are longing for the day to be together. Even in small measure, as a longing for the day that we see Christ face to face. This is, it's awkward to do what the church really was never meant to do, to hide out worship as if it was another sitcom or another sports game. You know, sure, the, the church is not a building and it's not an event, it's a people. But still, that people was made to gather together, to worship together. And they, they were meant to give hugs and high fives. They were meant to weep and laugh and celebrate and have spaces to do so. And in fact, they were meant to weather things like this together. Gathering in one room, whether it has stained glass and organs or not. And to hear from God and say back to Him, you really are worthy of our trust. It's one of the reasons that we actually have held off observing communion in this season, because part of communion is partaking of that as one body, together gathering the symbols of Christ's body and blood uh, as uh, a declaration of our common dependence upon our Savior, as being commonly invited to the table by our Father to renew our vows to our glorious King. And it will be sweet when we can take communion together in person once again. Long with me together, even if, again, it's in small measure to understand what it means to long for the day to see our great king face to face. Wouldn't it be sweet, friends? And friend, if this, again, is your first encounter with our church, welcome to you. I can't wait to meet you in person. But all that being said, uh, if you are watching the headlines at all lately, and there will likely be more headlines after the point that we record this, I think we'd all say we're hardly, we've hardly witnessed more tense times, to put it lightly, in our nation than these. If only our 
greatest issue right now was the boredom of social distancing. You see, in just a period of a month, we've gone from 100 cases to over 100,000 cases, with over 1,500 deaths in the United States alone, making it one of the epicenters of this epidemic due to the virus known as COVID-19. But even if these statistics don't make you anxious, the economic shockwaves are being felt by many. The officials tell us that these shockwaves will be felt perhaps for many years to come. In fact, I think in many ways, friends and Pete are going to see some of this chronic crisis is still coming. In my immediate family, I have those who are in the medical industry who are running themselves ragged, as are many of you, trying to keep the, themselves healthy in their cities calm, and those whose children don't know how to make sense of what is happening, some who are fairly certain they will be out of work very soon, and my wife and I, just to be honest, are nervous about having a fourth kid and all of this, letting alone trying to navigate social distancing for myself, being, a, being somebody who's in the high-risk category, being on immunosuppressants, I don't mean to be melodramatic about all these things, but it's important that we feel the scale of this, to even admit the uncomfortable emotions that this brings up. You see, none of us are going to be untouched by this, and it's important that Christians are more honest than anyone. And actually, Christians are uniquely able to be more honest than anyone. Friend, if you've got your head in the sand and you insist on believing that you've got your life completely under your control and you don't particularly care about how this is brutalizing the lives of your neighbors or other nations around the world. I, I have to be honest, I don't know what to tell you, but if you right now are realizing just how out of control your life is, and if you just can't seem to get your legs under you, I have to tell you, God has real hope for you. He is able to make you stand firm. Today, we're beginning a series called the Invisible War. And no, it's not COVID-19. Rather, this continuing in the book of Ephesians, we are going to look at the fight that is behind our other fights. You and I, we tend to think of our lives, we make sense of our existence in terms of tooth and nail, in terms of flesh and blood. But the Bible says our greatest fight is actually none of these things. And this fight is actually not one that we can win on our own. And today we're going to be honest about all of these things, but we can only be so honest, I, I, I have to admit, because in the Bible it maintains an equally stubborn grip upon our hope as well, even in dark times. Or we should say, especially in dark times. So let's look at Ephesians 6 together, if you would, honing in on three very, very sharp claims that Paul makes about the nature of our world and about the nature of our hope. If you'll turn there with me. First, number one, things are not what they seem. Now, I could not be more excited, I have to tell you, about our culture's fascination with science fiction right now. I, uh, if only I could go back and reassure middle school Evan or high school Evan for that matter, college, Evan, that someday your Star Wars minifigures, your Lord of the Rings posters, very soon the nerds are going to be cool. 
They're even going to have Lego competitions on TV where you can watch with your kids. Not that we've done that for the last several nights this week. <laughs> that could all change tomorrow again. But until then, I'm going to ride this wave, wave for as long as it would, as long as possible. And I am intent on bringing my kids with me. One of the most recent shows that was uh, that many people are nerding out though about recently is on Netflix called uh, Stranger Things, a, a miniseries set in the 80s about a group of middle school friends, who, which it follows um, in, as they're suddenly, um, suddenly their humdrum life in a rural town of Hawkins, Indiana is interrupted with a hidden world. And this sin, sin, sinister hidden world known in the show only as the Upside Down one of the things that makes the show just so fascinating. But it's interesting. This idea of worlds that are invisible to the naked eye, carrying on just beyond the grasp of our senses, this has been a reoccurring theme in fiction for actually generations. You think of Alice in Wonderland, or Chronicles of Narnia, or Harry Potter, the recently popular works of Neil Gaiman. The premise of worlds operating outside of our notice, and yet still breaking through into our present experience. This notion shows up across generational and cultural lines. In fact, these assumptions have shown up for thousands of years across oceans and very different peoples. It's hardly airtight proof of their existence, but still the enduring sense there are worlds beyond what we can see. This enduring sense seems to be at least worth taking seriously. It's as if even modern people today, who supposedly should know better, can't seem to shake mythologies of the past, as if the mystical is still breaking through. Why is it that the, those we insist on writing these kind of stories even today? And I think it's because Something within us has this sense that even our world is not all that it seems to be. Now, once you grant that, then it's, it's not so hard to imagine, I have to tell you, that these forces may not all be so pleasant. After all, why would we have such a booming horror industry if at least a piece of us wondered there, was, there were indeed, again, forces out there beyond our sight, but that not all of these forces are for our and these forces may even be called evil. Is it really so easy to dismiss this haunting sense as childish? Now I recognize it's hard for many Western Americans to comprehend this, but entire cultures have lived and live today under the fear of these forces, many of whom were considered at the time quite civilized, including the city of Ephesus, to whom this letter was written. We have records of not just the superstitions of this culture, but their deep-seated fear of entities like the what was called the Night-Stalking Hecate, who was said to be this monstrous queen who reveled in the souls of the dead. And these are, you know, seem again like something for young adult fiction, but for this culture, it was one that kept much of the, the, uh, the city in terror and gained quite a following of those who were devoted to the occult and devoted to, in, in fact, um, 
given much to these kind of entities. And in fact, these, the terror of these, uh, these uh, forces held so much of the city in a sway that much of the local economy was bolstered by um, uh, really ridiculous attempts at forms of spiritual protection. You know, this merchants, merchants in that city made a living from various things, including uh, charms, which we have found in archaeology today, amulets, even incantations for hire. Acts 19 actually tells us a little bit of what these cultures were like throughout the first century, but particularly in Ephesus, and it says that when the gospel actually took hold in Ephesus and when it began to spread, one of the first effects that it had was that people began turning up in droves to burn their magic books, of all things. In fact, it said that so many magic books were burned on that day that if we were to account the amount of silver that was the equivalent of what they were burning in literature that day, it would amount to something like $6 million today. The Bible, it turns out, has a very interesting explanation for this sense, even this dread we have of the supernatural. And it doesn't dismiss it. Instead, notice some of the words that Paul uses. He refers to our time as this present darkness in verse 12. He even calls these days evil. You see, along with the rest of the Bible, Paul does not assume that all that is is what we can see, what we can smell, what we can taste or touch. He assumes that some of our nightmares are very much real. And it's easy for modern people to dismiss these kind of practices and assumptions as primitive. But it seems as if even again, modern people today can't shake this sense still. We just have found new ways of coping for it. Instead of amulets, instead of charms and incantations, we find airbags and insurance policies make us feel safe. Our streaming and our scrolling dulls our wandering imaginations. The celebrities and the scientific experts, they explain away the unexplainable for us. Our news channels and our Twitter feeds, they give us new enemies to despise. And our horror movies and our Halloween domesticate our sense of haunting into another product to be consumed. But what if some of our nightmares are real friends? This leads to the second point, that someone really is out to get you. Now, I realize this sounds pretty dramatic, but mentioning demons, I know, makes call uh, makes some of us roll our eyes. Well, some of you right now are leaning forward and saying, all right, come on, Pastor, can't wait for this. Demons, according to the Bible, just to be clear, are fallen angels. They were created to glorify God, according to the scriptures. These angels, they now follow Satan in rebelling against God and in tormenting humanity. They seem rather fantastical to us. And while not certainly every bad thing in the Bible is attributed to their influence, they are linked to things like the suffering of Job, to the imprisonment and the persecution of early Christians. Some illnesses, in fact, are linked to their uh, oppression, the rejection and distortion of 
early Christian teaching, even larger political, judicial, and economic systems are said to be under their sway. In fact, Jesus, we find that some of the most common stories and the like most common themes throughout the Gospels is when he encounters those who are oppressed and possessed by demons. Again, the idea of an intelligent and tremendously complex force like the demonic realm is not surprising to much of the world today, but still, I get it, many of us, Satan and demons, they seem like leftover superstitions, don't they? From societies that didn't have the science that we now have, as Tim Keller puts it, to us, Satan is just a symbol now, an ironic way to deflect personal responsibility for evil. Isn't that what many of us assume? Now, there's certainly a danger of giving these forces too much credit. Some Christians, indeed, have an unhealthy preoccupation with spiritual forces, with seeing demons everywhere. I remember being on a mission strip in which I had a friend who stubbed her, smashed her thumb with a hammer, and on the spot, this woman showed up trying to cast the demon newly imprisoned in her thumb. There are some who really do excuse themselves more than that, that the devil made me do it, passing their responsibility for evil and sin in the world. But then I, I actually think that it's more common today to openly dismiss the reality of dark spiritual forces rather than to get overly excited. Or we just domesticate those notions into something cartoony, something that is like the red-horned, pitchfork-wielding creature that sits on our shoulder. Even religious people, I find, can be a bit too cavalier about these spiritual forces. Satan and demons, to them, if they exist at all, are rather laughable. You could argue, though, that this posture is just as dangerous, if not more so, than giving these forces too much credit. You could argue that leaving these forces unacknowledged plays actually right into their own hand. After all, it stands to reason that working and influencing behind the scenes is much more effective in a society that doesn't give credibility to their existence. All that being said, still, the discussion of rulers and authorities, of cosmic powers and spiritual forces, a bit removed from our day to day, especially now. Especially at times like this when the threats that we face are a bit more in our face, don't they? But I, I suppose that's the point, isn't it? I want us to notice the phrase in verse 11 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word choice is really important. You see, the same phrase was used in chapter 4, verse 14, of teachers who tossed the Ephesians to and fro with their cunning, who led them away from what was truest and best, and as Paul put it, by craftiness and their deceitful schemes. Have you ever experienced someone who could only be described as cunning? Who could only be described as having deceitful schemes. The very word schemes speaks more of a quiet, kind of sneering deception than an openly brazen argument or attack. Dr. Klein Snodgrass, as he puts it, 
But evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains an entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. Paul uses the image of wrestling. You notice here? In which you know, wrestling was a common form used to train up soldiers, in which a soldier would work for any opportunity to knock their opponent off their balance, in which they could use their brute strength, but often the greatest athletes were masters more of subtle feints and redirects, using their opponent's weight and force against themselves. It didn't matter how strong their foe was, if they could just throw their balance, they would soon have them under their control. This is the real threat in suffering and fear, friends, it turns out. When in our suffering and our fear, we, we start to overlook the battle behind the battle, the danger behind the danger. Our fight, Paul clarifies, is, is actually not with flesh and blood, but with forces that are looking for any advantage to throw us off our balance. It's normal to experience anxiety and sorrow. I have to tell you, I experience them too. But these emotions and experiences, you know, they're not our only threat. Instead, the evil one wants to press his advantage at these very moments to knock you from your feet. These very real very vengeful forces are looking for any opportunity, any advantage to throw you on your back. It may be a serious shock, heartbreak. It may be something as simple as what Paul mentions in chapter 4, a lingering grudge, a sneaky lie, quietly cherished daydream. These can be enough for the enemy to gain but the result is the same. Their goal is that by any means necessary, we might be thrown into despair. We might doubt the goodness of God, or merely forget it. Believing that solution is found better on my terms than in his. You know, in so doing, I exchange God as Lord and Savior for myself, rejecting the only one I owe everything to. This is why Paul describes the human race in chapter 2, not only as following the course of this world, but as following the power of the, uh, the prince of the power of the air, another reference to the evil one or Satan. A high piper playing the fife of our most natural desires to lead us right out of town and straight into death. C.S. Lewis puts it, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which we're going to refer to in just a second, too. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Again, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. This is where the turn takes place, leading us to Paul's third claim, where our hope is found. And it's going to sound again a bit strange as all of these claims might. Number three, you are not enough. You know, I love, of all things, 
boxing movies. Now, I hope that doesn't get me in trouble with too many of you, but you know these old films like Rocky or uh, Cinderella Man? I particularly love these, these films, these, uh, these uh, boxing movies where they're an underdog fight. You know, you know what no one likes, though, in those films is an overconfident fighter. Someone who rushes into a fight untrained and unprepared, certain of victory, only to find themselves in a bloody unconsciousness. Again, my point, again, this whole sermon is not to be melodramatic, for instance, especially in this discussion of spiritual warfare, but there is a real tendency amongst religious and irreligious alike to see spiritual forces as something really fluffy and trivial. But not only that, there is a real tendency to be overconfident, to underestimate our weight class. I appreciate how Martin Luther summarizes the threat in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Listen in to this, these lyrics. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Listen to this line. On earth is not his equal. Do it. Martin Luther's not being extreme. He's reading his Bible. Acts 19, there's a fascinating story about these Jewish men called the sons of Sceva who were, had, of all things, they were in the trade of being itinerant Jewish exorcists. It means they were paid for exercising demons, probably not to great effect, but again, in such a superstitious culture where you could sell amulets on the street, they could, get, could make quite a sizable living. And they were always looking for new tricks and tools to put in the tool belt. And they began to hear of the power of Paul, who had come to town. He was preaching in the name of Jesus. And in so doing, he was demonstrating some rather shocking spiritual power, a kind of spiritual power, honestly, that they likely did not have. And so they decided to try the same name that Paul was using on for signs, to take this magic formula's name of Christ, whom Paul preaches, out for a test drive inside the castle their next demon out again in Jesus' name whom Paul preaches. Verse 15, though, takes a turn. Read this with me. But the evil spirit answered them, In Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And talk about your social distancing. This is ridiculous. These stories like this are all over the Bible. Now, I remember reading this years ago and wondering to myself, I mean, come on, what did they do wrong? I thought Jesus' name was to be the name of power, right? I mean, how many of you, like me, have woken up in a cold sweat, absolutely terrified out of your mind? And the thing that's coming to my, my, my mind still, since I was a young child, is Jesus' name, recounting it over and over again. You see, the issue, though, is not that Jesus' name is not a name of power. It's not even that they didn't believe hard enough that this magic would work. It's something far different. In C.S. Lewis's famous book, again, The Screwtape Letters, which, in which Lewis imagines a conversation between two demons, Screwtape, the veteran mentor in Wormwood, the novice, whom he is seeking to guide in the fine art of temptation. And at one point, Screwtape speaks of turning Christianity into a means rather than an end. In fact, it's one of the main weapons that a demon might use. 
Again, all of this is imagined, but surprisingly um, touches on probably what temptation works like. Again, speaks of turning Christianity into a means rather than an end. He advises Wormwood to take something that is apparently good, and he uses the example of social justice, but we could substitute other things like family stability, political power, a moral society, a sense of personal comfort and safety. But not only that good thing, according to Screwtape, that good thing must become then an ultimate thing. Something Christianity exists itself to serve. For in so doing, what happens is that God is turned into a convenience, a, a means of producing what it is we want most, something that God himself will never tolerate. See, God will not be made a means into an end, even if it is for a good end. Because in the end, like the sense of Sceva, our faith is not resting upon him, but on ourselves. I realize that the central motto of our times is believe in yourself. I've referenced enough Disney movies that it seems to be at the, the center of every chorus. I fear, though, that many Christians have not only bought this wholesale, but they have forged an alternative gospel in its image. The gospel is, or this alternative gospel, is the you are enough gospel. The message we are convinced God most wants us to hear is not he is worthy, but I am worthy. Our greatest enemy, we say, is a lack of self-esteem. And the cross, then, proves just surely how worthy I am for God's love. A real point of this alternative Christianity is to believe in yourself, to realize your inner strength, to find out that I may feel weak, but in reality, I am enough. You know, there was a YouTube uh, video that went viral just last year that has a whole new meaning now, I guess, to go viral, doesn't it? Of a three-year-old boy who was walking to school reciting over and over again, I am smart, I am blessed, I can do anything. Now, I have, to, I have to tell you, the video is adorable, but it's a message that not just children are trying to believe, many adults are trying to preach at themselves declaring affirmations over their insecurities and fears, fears like, like magical incantations we desperately want to believe are true. The problem is, is, no matter how many times you preach to yourself in the mirror, it's only a matter of time before I am enough isn't enough. And importantly, this has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Look at with me to verse 10 again. What does it say? Be strong in the Lord. We have it right there, right? God would tell us to do, he wouldn't tell us to do anything that we couldn't do, right? I mean, he's telling us to be strong. That must mean we are strong. But that entirely misses the irony because you'll notice that I cut off part of that verse. It's not simply be strong, not even be strong in the Lord, but be strong in the strength of his might. It is not simply stand against the schemes of the devil, but do so clothed with his armor. Yes, withstanding the evil day, and just to be honest, days like this can feel evil. Standing firm will ask all of you. Verse 13 again says, having done all to stand firm. The Christian 
is hardly to let go and let, let God. That's not biblical faith. It, in fact, it, Christianity feels so much like hard work because it is hard work. And so often it feels like death to yourself because part of yourself, your old self, is dying. It is so often feeling like you are coming to the end of yourself because you have. But even so, look back to what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 that the that his audience might rest. Picking up in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great mind, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We must stand. We must be strong. We must withstand and we must put on. But the gospel does not preach our victory. It preaches His. It does not preach to us our strength. It preaches His. It, he is the one in chapter 3, after all, that tells us who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or even imagine. In fact, the glorious goodness of what has been accomplished because of Jesus is that that same power which raised Jesus from the dead and crushed the head of the forces of darkness as He rose to His throne is now the same power that he says is working within us, friends, if you are a Christian. Not, not because somehow we've unlocked our inner potential, not because somehow we believed in ourselves enough, not because we heard a divine cheerleader cheering us on from the stands, but because we, though helplessly weak, have been wrenched from the grasp of an accuser and placed under the protective care of a stronger king who now clothes us not just with new armor, but his own armor, this armor perhaps even being himself, that we might fight in him. As Colossians chapter 2 tells us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus will not be diminished into a trusty tool or a trendy trick to try on for size. He will not merely be an accent to your life, Christian. He's not something to just throw in the blender of spirituality with your other beliefs. Christ will only be taken as king. He will only be rested upon. He will only be worn as armor. We'll get to what this means to be clothed in the armor of God and how to proactively fight on the spiritual terrain next week. But let me ask you, friend, have you come to the end of yourself? Do you feel even now like your legs are buckling under you? Do you feel what it means to be thrown off balance? Let me ask you, what is your weakness, your fear, Preaching to you? Have you given up the fight for hope 
and holiness? Are you simply fighting from your own strength? Are you even fighting the right battle at all? Christ is calling you. Yes. It always begins this way, to admit your weakness, not your strength. And you are not enough for this fight. But then, and this is important, he is calling you to strengthen your hands with his strength. He is not stingy with you. He is not cold-hearted. He is not waiting for you to get your act together. No matter how many times you have messed up your life, he knows that only his power can rescue you. And if you are a Christian, that power is at work within you. Not by setting your sights again on your own strength and capacity. If you do so, you will lose. But in setting your gaze upon close today, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to listen to these words penned by Martin Luther, again in his famous hymn, The Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide in our striving or we were losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle.